Balls. He's a libertarian in chief. This is the libertarian chief chat. Just a libertarian chit chat with the chief. Oh, hey, I'm Kevin. I'm here too. All right, welcome to Chief Chats with Kevin Hobby and Todd Hagopian. I'm Kevin Hobby. And I am Todd Hagopian, and we have a great guest for you today, Brad Palumbo, featured on a number of websites and a fantastic writer in the Liberty Movement. Brad, want to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, so for folks that don't know, I work at the Foundation for Economic Education. I'm a writer and journalist, um, and I write about different policy and political issues from um, a libertarian-esque uh, per perspective. That's awesome. Yeah, and we'll talk a lot about the different things that you've written about, different publications that you've been featured in, and I think you even have a podcast we'll probably touch on later. Um, but yeah, no, thank you so much for coming on. I think this is going to be a great episode. Uh, we always like to start with everyone's story because a lot of people listen and they aren't quite all the way to libertarian or everybody had different ways Kevin came from kind of the far left. I came from the far right. and We both met in the middle now and, and are in the libertarian movement. What was your story? What was your conversion to libertarianism? So I, 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 it's an interesting one, I will say. I have uh, the unique honor of having attended. So for a little background here, I studied economics as an undergraduate student at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Now, people who aren't in economics won't recognize that name, but anyone who is will, will, because the University of Massachusetts Amherst Economics Department is actually the only openly Marxist economics department in the United States. So I went as kind of, you know, an apolitical, just not super political kind of 19, 18 year old. And I was plopped into being taught about the, the wonders and joys of the Soviet Union by professors that edited feminist Marxist journals. Uh, and then on the social side of things, a climate where students thought that words were violence. Uh, you were asked to say your pronouns to introduce yourself. People were told uh, the police were called when an offensive cartoon was scribbled on a dry erase board in a dorm. And the cartoon wasn't actually even offensive, but they perceived it as such. Uh, and so that tells you a little bit about the kind of far left bubble that I was dropped into. And, you know, being a young guy and always being a little bit of a contrarian, hence what I do now, I definitely skewed to the other side as a response. So I became kind of instinctively conservative in that context. And a conservative in the context of UMass Amherst is most people's center right uh, or moderate. However, for me, I think I went through a little bit of a phase where I, I was never pro-Trump. I voted for Gary Johnson in 2016 and I didn't vote for Trump this time around. Um, and I don't regret either of those decisions, but I did go through kind of maybe a, a reactionary phase when I was a little younger, where I kind of just embraced the right full hard um, just as a reaction to the craziness I saw around me, the Marxism, the socialism, the illiberalism in the social justice warriors uh, kind of fervor. But over time, I, especially on issues like criminal justice, immigration, um, I came to more libertarian positions, honestly, just through working in the liberty movement and reading and learning and meeting new people uh, and hearing new arguments and new ideas 
And so now I'm, I'm very much in that kind of sweet spot between libertarianism and conservatism, where I, a lot of people in the liberty movement identify. And, and without dating yourself, um, was 16 kind of the, the first time that you've gotten into the liberty movement after the Amherst experience? Yeah, yeah. So that was a yes. Okay. Yeah, because, um, yeah, so I, I went to school out east for one year before I went broke and had to come back and go to the stupid school in Michigan. Um, and, and so I know what out east looks like, especially being a former neocon when I was out there. Um, so, you know, <laughs> so, and, and my, my college wasn't Amherst, um, but, uh, I can only imagine. And Kevin, of course, is a former communist, so he can probably relate to a lot of what you're saying. Um, but I think it's interesting that, um, that for you during your most, you know, kind of, um, most influential years being exposed to that, even by smart leaders, you know, quote unquote leaders and professors, uh, you went the opposite way. How many folks do you think did that in your class? So not a whole lot, but more than you'd think. I used to have students, I would say, I'd say this, like UMass had a reputation as a leftist campus and it was a leftist campus, sure, but it was really just a 20% of the campus that was super leftist. And they were the ones that were super vocal and that would pick it and demonstrate and do Twitter pylons and Facebook mobs and that sort of thing. But most of the student body was kind of detached and apolitical, maybe center left. A fair number probably did vote Republican or Libertarian or third party and just shut up and never said anything about it. Cause I used to, I was one of the only people I'd be in a, you know, a small class that we'd have like a discussion section and I'd battle 30 other people on a debate on something. And then five people who never spoke once in the whole class would come up to me outside and say, wow, I'm glad you said something. I agree with everything you said. And I'd say, well, why didn't you say anything? And they're like, well, the girls in my sorority would hate it if they knew I liked Trump or like some sort of thing like that where... Um, it was just really not an open climate for debate and ideas. And unfortunately, that's what college should be. Um, and so I had to create that for myself. And it was an uncomfortable and rocky road at times. I'll tell you that. Right. And what was your degree? You, it was economics in the end. Yeah. So I studied economics and political science because I, I really didn't believe that a journalism degree was worth the paper that it could be printed on. Uh, and so I decided to study the things I wanted to cover instead of how they uh, kind of liberal detached journalism professors thought journalism should be done because that hasn't gone so great uh, under their uh, teachings and dominance the last few decades. That's really funny. So I grew up and uh, was heavy into business. I knew that's what I was going to do with my life. And I um, majored in political science and minored in psychology because they were the easiest <laughs> and then and then uh, they were the just the fastest to graduate and the easiest uh, had the fewest restrictions on what classes you could take when um and i just wanted to get out of there uh but and then it turned into of course a passion mm -hmm. so for me i uh political science were easy a's mostly and then some of the economic classes were really hard yeah. um but i ended up <laughs> It, it, it helps you out a little when you can get 
the easy A's and the poli sci classes in case you get a B in some of the tougher econ yeah. classes. Um, but I really did like both of them. The only thing I didn't like, and this might get into the weeds a little bit, is I hated, there's this tendency in progressive economics uh, to empiricize things to the point of absurdity. And so uh, what I really like about Austrian economics, free market economics, is that they're about studying human behavior and theory and what we know about how people respond, whereas there's this, this kind of obsession among progressive economists and wonks about what do the data say when statistics are, uh, yes, it's important to have studies and research that validate your views and support it, but you can, you can twist numbers to say anything and there's so many variables. So it's like the, just because you show a study that says something that totally counteracts what economic logic and human behavior suggests and theory sh should be the case, that doesn't disprove the theory if you can't explain why the theory is wrong. It suggests that you've got some funky numbers and they've got this obsession with uh, data and experts and empiricism that I think overlooks the true value of economics, which is what it can tell us about human behavior. Yeah, and that's fascinating because I uh, am part of the Mises caucus um, in the libertarian movement, and uh, I agree. So, so human action is much more important important than how the numbers look. And and where I started to think that because I wasn't always that way. I love statistics, still do, by the way. Um, but the first managerial economics course I ever took, and I don't know if you're if I'm saying that the way that they taught it out east or not. Um, but managerial economics was a lot about uh, the different ways that you can account for things and have it still be right. But in one way, you know, it looks like a good idea. And in the other way, it looks like a bad idea. And we went through all these different, all these different examples of how, you know, this, you're actually making money. If you look at it this way, you're actually losing money. If you look at it this way. And I was like, oh, so accounting is just bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> like that's what accounting is now i got it yeah and, and statistics you know depending on how you ask the question depending on how you make your first assumption you know it can just snowball into coming up with the wrong conclusion and i thought that was really interesting yeah i think well, it's interesting that you bring up the the human action because you know with with my story i kind of went the opposite so i was at a very conservative campus and I founded and started the Young Communist on Campus chapter and was very, very hardcore into Marxism, very, very into the statistics and all of that, but not had no experience with how people actually were. And then I actually left college to start my own company and got involved with the actual actions of people and how they really are versus, you know, what it looks like on paper. And that's what kind of led me towards libertarianism. So I, I think it's interesting that you bring that up. Yeah, I think it, I think that's the most important insight. It, it reminds me, and I know we're going to talk about this later, but one of the things I've written a lot about is the Big Government Cares Act and COVID stimulus and all the dysfunction and waste and disaster that's in those policies. And one of the funny things to me was the, what I wrote about the unemployment system created by the Cares Act. Now they added a six hundred dollar supplement to state level unemployment benefits. Uh, passed by Congress, so the federal supplement. And what this actually resulted in was 70% of unemployed people could get more by staying on unemployment benefits 
than by going back to work. Obviously, if you want to reopen an economy, that's a labor disincentive. There were progressive economists who were replying to my to me, trying to show a number that suggests no, there's no labor disincentive from this. Right. And I'm like, one, your numbers are not really convincing, and there's other numbers. But it doesn't matter if you got the best number in the world. Obviously and intuitively, offering somebody more money to stay on welfare than to go back to their work is a labor disincentive. It's right. like you've got their head up their ass with this, this addiction to empiricism, and it doesn't describe the real world. So, uh, and it doesn't describe how human beings actually behave. So that's, I think, the, the more interesting insight uh, of free market economists. Yeah, and I, I don't know how close my number will be to the ones that you did, but I was working for Warren Buffett's company at the time. Um, and when that bill passed, I went to my boss and I said, listen, we've got a big issue because in Oklahoma, if somebody makes less than $38,000 a year, they're going to make more money sitting on a couch than coming to work for the temp agency. You know what I mean? And yeah. so these folks that get laid off, we're not, we're going to have a huge problem in that we can't get labor into the factory um, because we don't pay $38,000 a year. And let's say we even did, let's say we paid $40,000 a year. You're talking about somebody getting an extra $2,000 to work 40 hours a week. You know what yeah. I mean? Why wouldn't <laughs> they? are not going to do it. It would be stupid. And so, of course, I ended up getting fired two months later because we couldn't get employees in. No one wanted to remember that. You know, I told them that was going to happen. Um, but but at the end of the day, um, that's exactly what happened. You were exactly right. And and those of us who understood economics and understood action and how people were going to react to getting $600 a month could see that coming a mile away. So to follow up on uh, the point I, I was trying I was trying to get to, and I guess I got a little sidetracked, but my journey to liberty, that's kind of how I got to the libertarian worldview. And then I started working in journalism, um, mostly because I've always been a reader and a writer, and I've always been a contrarian. There's this a commentator who has this slogan, born for the storm. And I'm not a, personally a fan of everything she has to say, but I love the slogan because I've always loved kind of the battle of ideas, you know, going head to head with people and having it out, um, whether it's on policy or principles or ideas. That's really uh, what I want to wake up and do every day. So I started writing for the campus newspaper um, and I wrote honestly like squish columns. Like these were not really that crazy. For example, one of them was I wrote in favor of Betsy DeVos's Title IX due process reforms for campus sexual assault. Of course, that it's gravely serious and should be pursued, just that you got to have basic due process rights even on campus even in these hot button cases. I also wrote in favor of allowing concealed carry on campus for lawful law-abiding gun owners because we had a gun-free zone on, on UMass's campus. And a few other things uh, like that, opposing affirmative action at a state school that should be bound by the Equal Protection Clause. Now, you would have thought that I was Oh, Donald Trump or Milo Yiannopoulos, based on the way these people melted down. They accused me of uh, committing violence against women for my column. They, convinced, they accused me of uh, fomenting violence and promoting 
uh, school shootings. They, they tried to get me fired. They started petitions and eventually they were successful and I didn't get fired from the student newspaper, even though I had broken the traffic record for web page views 10 times uh, and kept breaking my own record. But I got the bug there for writing and opinion writing and editorial. So I'm not a reporter. That's what I do. I work in kind of opinion essays, policy writing, op-ed pages. And so, uh, but what I did is I used that experience to go and get internships and get professionally published. And now I've written all over the place. So I've I worked at the Washington Examiner for several years uh, and I'm still a columnist there. I've written for USA Today, National Review, other outlets like that. Um, and that's hopefully what I'm, I'm gonna get to do in the longer term is write from a clear perspective uh, make my case for the things I believe in and fight the good fight in the public battle of ideas. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. I mean, anytime you can learn young, you know, what you're meant to do is pretty awesome. And getting fired from Amherst student newspaper is just a gold star. So don't worry about that. Everybody gets fired. So Yeah, yeah. I take it as a compliment now, but honestly, <laughs> this sounds lame. I cried. I'm 20 years old. I'm like, I'm never going to get to be a journalist. Uh, I was heartbroken that they fired me. Um, it, some of it was so ridiculous. I'll tell you this. One of the things that got me fired was, um, this was part of it. There were a couple things that went into it. There was a non-binary person who worked with me on staff and he was complaining about rate or I shouldn't say he, they were complaining about racism um, and accusing someone, I think unfairly and disingenuously of racism. And I said, if, if, don't be the boy who cried wolf. If you do, no one will take you seriously when there's actual racism to call out. Right. And he reported me to the higher ups <laughs> for misgendering, for using the term boy who cried wolf. Right. And <laughs> they agreed <laughs> with, with my coworker and said I was wrong and wrote me a disciplinary citation. <laughs> Uh, and so that was a factor when I got fired for the next thing that went on. Uh, yeah. And so it, I, let's just say that I was always doomed there. It wasn't going to work out for me there. And it wasn't going to work out for me uh, anywhere in liberal media, unfortunately. Right. Um, so I've been able to basically have a career in center-right media. Um, conservative media is actually... There's some exceptions in some places more so than others, um, open to libertarian ideas and arguments on a lot of things, even though I think the right in many ways is becoming less libertarian. Uh, yep. Actual conservative media still has a libertarian streak in some parts of it. Yeah, and I feel like um, when conservatives, the individuals are put in front of libertarian ideas without knowing where MAGA stands on them, they still gravitate towards the libertarian idea until they find out that they're supposed to be against it. Yeah, it's funny because just on a variety of, of the actual issues, the libertarian ideas are winning among conservatives. Criminal justice reform has become much more popular uh, with conservatives. I mean, National Review, the magazine, just did an editorial calling for uh, the legalization of marijuana. 
yep. uh, gay marriage and those sorts of things much more popular. Um, in, in many ways, foreign policy, the right has become a lot less neoconservative, at least in uh, if you look at the voters, the politicians, maybe not, but Republican voters have become much more disillusioned with foreign entanglements in Afghanistan and Iraq uh, and so on. And so there and a lot of these ideas, we, we really are winning. Uh, it's just a matter of getting people to stop viewing everything as a matter of team red or team blue. And unfortunately, that's just where 95% of the country is at. Right. And, and I think they, you know, they may be with us on issues in between elections, but then they slide back into the fold during elections. But to your point, you know, Kevin and I, Kevin grew up in Oklahoma. I am a plant transplant here, um, but we now have uh, legalized marijuana for medicine and cannabis all over. Um, and there's been articles about how Oklahoma is one of the biggest markets now and it's a red state. And then you, you look at the dichotomy between that and Washington DC, where this latest, um, what is it, the Moores Act, the latest Moores Act, where only five Republicans voted to um, legalize it. You know yeah. what I mean? That where, was an interesting one because yeah. even some of the guys who are usually with us, like Thomas Massey voted no on that yeah. bill. Uh, yeah. And I, I like Massey, but I wasn't very convinced by his argument. Obviously, <laughs> there was a 5% excise tax placed on marijuana. Um, and there was a bunch of, you know, like regulations and government stuff kind of put into the bill. Yeah. But I still think that's better than the drug war. Uh, <laughs> so if I had been there, I certainly would have vote, voted for it. Um, but you know what was interesting to me on that issue, actually, within the Republicans, there very much is a generational divide. So, so Matt Gates, who's kind of a clown in a lot of ways, but he was out there banging the drum for the legal marijuana bill. He gave yeah. an impassioned floor speech. And like when you think of the people who oppose it in Republican politics, most of them are over 60, if right. we're being honest. You can't find me very many under 35 Republicans who want to criminalize marijuana. Right. So I'll tell you, that means that in the long run, we're winning. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. And um, yeah, <laughs> I'll stay away from Matt Gates. I was going to make a bad comment. So anyway, but at the end of the day, it was funny that you said that because that was the exact same um, comment I made to Britton Freckles this weekend was, um, was basically that. Uh, I wasn't convinced with the Massey response or the folks that responded the way he did, because if you've got somebody sitting in jail and if this thing passes, they get out of jail and their record gets expunged, but you're not going to let them do that because the next time you go and buy weed, you're going to have to pay 5% tax. You know what I mean? Like that is not a conservative position. You, you take the win and then you, you work to lower the tax later. It's yeah, I agree. And I also feel that there's just um, in some camps, not enough pragmatism. You know what I mean? Like I'd vote for a bill that would only decriminalize marijuana, even if it wouldn't legalize it. Cause that's progress. You know, it's like, you, you have to look at taking in the, in the right direction. Uh, there's a lot of kind of purity tests or, well, this isn't the best way to do it. And, and there's a place for that, but the place for that uh, shouldn't be when you have just a, a black or white voting decision. 
Yeah. Because there you can really only pick one of two options. Yeah, and that is so key because I, uh, during the uh, libertarian presidential primary, right, we had these discussions and I was on Hornberger's team and I was arguing, you know, you, you, need, to, you need to be putting out these bold, um, principled positions uh, versus voting for a candidate that has these incrementalist positions. That was my big argument, right? Because I like the bold, you know, principled libertarian position, get it out there so people can understand what we stand for. But to your point, when it comes down to a vote, you can either let that guy out of jail and have his record expunged, or you can buy weed legally and pay 5%. <laughs> like, which one of those do you want? You know, um, so... I don't know. To me, that's a no-brainer. See, see that I'm the opposite. Yeah, I'm the opposite with that, though. I think any step towards liberty, towards more freedom, needs to be celebrated. And it doesn't do us any good to be standing around saying, well, you know, I'm the most libertarian that ever libertarian, and I didn't vote for that because it wasn't 100% libertarian while we're standing the bread lines. You know, you like, I, I don't think that there's any, there, there's no... Uh, Say what? I, I think you we're all saying the same thing once it gets to a vote. But yeah. where you and I do differ, Kevin, I think is that you're okay with the incrementalist policy proposals, whereas I'm not. When it starts yeah. as a proposal, I prefer the bold principle, you know, all the way libertarian proposal. But I think all three of us agree that once it gets to a vote, you know, we need to we need to take what we can get when we can get it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, so Brad, let's talk here. Um, talk about some of the stuff you've been writing about lately, some of the issues that you've been talking about and getting passionate about. Yeah, so I have kind of maybe two, two broad areas of coverage. One is, is policy and economics. So I write a lot about that. You know, I work at the Foundation for Economic Education. That's what I'm writing about on the day to day. Uh, I already touched on the CARES Act and COVID stuff. I also do a lot on in terms of, I wrote a lot, I write about criminal justice reform and the economic benefits of it. I also wrote about the importance of property rights in a market economy and the problems with rioting and looting and violence that we saw um, over the last nine months and how that's gonna have serious economic consequences. So I, I write about a lot in, in that bucket from the free market perspective. And then the other side of things, is where I sometimes come off as maybe more culturally conservative, but it's interesting because sometimes people say I'm not a true libertarian. They say that about everybody, but they're often saying it in response to things where I'm opining, but not saying what the government should do. So for example, I think you can be a libertarian and have moral views about things that are conservative, but not force those onto others. So for example, I support as a matter of policy legalizing sex work. I don't personally think it's moral or good, and I'm happy to say so that I think it's degrading and bad, um, but that's not an unlibertarian position. That's not quite the, the right example because that's not one of my main issues or anything, but it gets at the kind of the main concept I'm trying to describe. And that's that the other thing I talk about is I write a lot about LGBT issues, and I've got kind of an interesting perspective on this, um, if I say just because I am gay and I'm not religious, but I am a libertarian, so I believe in religious freedom, 
and I don't believe in treading on other people. So I end up just kind of constantly criticizing um, everybody on this <laughs> because the modern LGBT movement, TM, is big government progressive Democrat partisans who think anybody who doesn't share their social values is not just wrong, but evil and bad. And they don't want to argue with them. They want to just squash them with the government. And then on the other side, I think you have a lot of progress. You have a lot of people becoming within libertarianism, um, not, no, I'm sorry, within Republican voters and people becoming more libertarian on those issues. But you still have a lot of people who I would say um, lack compassion or lack familiarity. So there's still a lot of anonymous accounts that say horrible things or families that oust their children or, or conservative media outlets that, that write really inflammatory stories about transgender people and, and mock their appearance rather than discuss the ideas. Um, and so I think that's one of the areas where it's almost not even a question of like, some of it is with the First Amendment and with, you know, I don't believe you should have to bake the cake and those sorts of things. But a lot of it's not even libertarian or not, because it's not about the government. It's just about these cultural debates. Um, and so I do weigh in on a lot of that. Yeah, that's interesting. It's, um, I think this also goes back to what we were talking about on the average Republican voter versus the uh, average Republican representative, right? So I think, as far as I understand, I might be wrong, but the log cabin Republicans have, have for the most part, gone to the wayside, right? They no longer exist, or they're, they're not very big anymore. So they have a small, they do have a chapter. Okay. Uh, they've become, they've gone full pro-Trump, but yeah, they're not widely influential. Because um, okay. they used to have a role, right? They used to, it seems like I would hear hear them as a block, you know, um, and I think some of them either got beat, you know, or moved over to the Democrats or whatever. Um, but so I guess my point is, is I don't feel like there's a lot of Republican reps out there. The, the biggest name I can think of is Portman, you know, um, that that support gay marriage wholeheartedly and, and support LGBTQ plus issues. Um, but the average Republican I think it's starting to sway more towards that. Well, you know. It's interesting um, to look at the polling. So you don't have quite a majority of Republican voters, but you've got, uh, I believe, a plurality or 45% or so okay. of Republican voters that support gay marriage. Right. Then interestingly enough, when you talk about um, questions like, should gay people be rejected in society or should they be protected by anti-discrimination laws? Those sorts of questions, you'll get very high numbers, 60, 70% of Republican support for those sorts of things. So, and I also, you know, listen, I'm far from a Trump supporter, but uh, one thing I have always said about him is he's not anti-gay. Um, he really, he never has been. His administration has been a mixed bag in terms of policies that, that we can talk about. I don't agree with the transgender military ban uh, as a government policy, I think it's discriminatory. But Trump himself, he doesn't harbor animus, right? He's not a social conservative. I mean, he's on his third wife. 
Uh, <laughs> and he's an adulterer, right? Like he, so he does, so one positive is that he has not made gay issues a wedge issue and he hasn't spent much time demonizing, you know, the gay agenda or anything like that. So he has opened a window, I think, for the future um, to have just that be less of an issue. If you think about the last five years, um, it hasn't been so much of an issue outside of the courts. That's where the action's going to happen. But the actual political, like, whether you support gay marriage or not, it doesn't matter. And maybe it should, right? Like, we can talk about Obergefell and the legal reasoning and whether we want a super legislature in the Supreme Court. But just the reality is that it's like not the hot button issue in politics that it once was. And from where I sit, there's a lot of upside to that. Yeah. And I think, um, interestingly, right, so the, I think one, one thing that I believe is that because it was legalized, it, people kind of look around who were against it, you know, and, and realize that it didn't change their life you know, their personal life didn't change at all when gay marriage was legalized, right? And that has, that's where I think, because I think the day it was legalized, I might be wrong on this, the day it was legalized, you probably wouldn't have that 45% of the Republican Party. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, no. You know what I mean? And and it swung hard that way. I think it was probably 2011 or something. I wrote an article um, when I finally made the leap over to the other side. Um where I was saying, okay, I, I now support gay marriage after a long time of not at all, because uh, I was a super neocon and a super conservative, and I, I couldn't do anything other than the Republican platform for a long time. And this was actually one of the issues um, that got me started on the path towards libertarianism. Um, and it was, and it, when it came down to it, what it was is when Portman came out and made his announcement. I really had to, I loved Portman. I had to look hard at um, what his argument was and look hard at what arguments I was making. And I just, I couldn't defend them anymore. I couldn't, I didn't believe what I was saying. You know what I mean? And I think once it was legalized, a lot of people kind of went through that, you know, well, mm. you know, it, it's gonna, it's gonna bastardize marriage, blah, blah, blah. Two years later, nothing's happened, right? So nothing, you know, um, you know, all of a sudden, you know, uh, polygamy is going to be legal. Well, that didn't happen. You know, all these people had all these wild ideas of what was going to happen and none of it happened. Um, so, I, right. so the reason I'm saying all that is I think marijuana is going through that same process right now. You know, a number of states have legalized it. We're seeing that they didn't go off the rails. In fact, a lot of them are having financial success with it. Um, and, and I think we're going to go the same way throughout the country on that. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, that That's another one of those things where like, I don't, I, one of the things that frustrates me about American politics is it seems like a lot of people cannot separate their personal feelings about an issue between their question of should it be legal or illegal? Right. I don't like to smoke marijuana. I don't particularly like to be around people when they're smoking marijuana that's really not my thing. I find it kind of gross. But the solution to that, to me, has always just been, so I won't do it, right? Like, that's just how I think younger people think of these things and, and have thought of them as they've come up 
uh, across the years, it's, it's really just kind of mind boggling um, to me to think that my preferences should be the law for everyone. And I apply that across the board, but it seems like on the left, they want this in many ways uh, on marijuana, they want it on LGBT issues, but then on all sorts of other things, they think they're, well, they like public schools, so everyone should have to go to a public school and there shouldn't be any other options and no school choice and no, <laughs> none of that, uh, ban homeschooling, all sorts of stuff like that. And then on the right, you also have a lot of this kind of conservative nanny statism um, uh, in its own right. So it's just, I truly don't want to use the government to force my views onto anyone else. I just wanted to preserve my rights. Um, and I, I don't know what we have to do to get people to, to see that. But I think that is the biggest cultural war that's being fought right now. And it's gonna keep being fought until people learn how to live side by side. And I think there's an interesting lesson there because for example, like your, your no true libertarian discussion, right? People say that to you. They say that to me all the time. Whenever we voice an opinion that isn't quite on point, you know, with the platform or something like that. And what I always say back is, have you ever met a libertarian that wasn't opinionated? Like we're allowed to have opinions as long as we're not trying to have somebody with a gun enforce our opinions, then we're still libertarian. Right. We can we can differ on I don't care if you differ on gay marriage or abortion or whatever, like you can differ on these items as long as you're not acting, asking the government to take action. So yeah. I completely agree with you, though, I think abortion is different. I do. Um, <laughs> just because if you think that a, if you're pro-life, then you think that abortion is a nap violation. Right. And, and you think if you think abortion is murder then you do think it should be illegal under the libertarian frameworks. I think it is kind of different than those other ones. That's fair. That's fair. And we don't want to get too off track on abortion. We oh, trust me. I do not. <laughs> that is an issue where I am pro-life, but I'm saying like yeah. of all the issues that I really dip my toe in, that's when I rarely venture into big debates about. Yeah. And I'm the same because I am, <laughs> I'm very, very pro-life. Kevin, on the other hand, is not yeah, see, I'm 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 what I would consider radically pro-choice, and I just avoid it 100%. Uh, Rex Lawhorn has the best quote about it. We were debating about this, the plank for the OKLP, and he stood up in this meeting and he said, "It doesn't matter what side you're on, you're wrong." And that's just the way that I view it. And I think, uh, and I think, just to be fair, eventually Kevin and I are going to have an awesome one-hour screaming match on this topic, and it'll be a great episode. But let's <laughs> let's swing back the other way. <laughs> you should, but I will say, just I do think the LP plank on abortion is wrong. Uh, I think that there's the there should be a neutral one that says LP candidates can take their own stance on it. Yeah. See, I don't think that we should have a plank at all. Bingo. That's Fair. what's yeah. going to happen within the Leave next it up four to the years. Because that's the most... You got it, Kevin. Within the next four years, that's going to be what happens is my prediction is that that plank will be completely eliminated. That'd be a good outcome, I think. Yeah, yeah I, think that, I think that removing it is the only way because, you know, like when I was looking at, at running as a candidate under the LP platform, like 
you want to you don't want to have to defend this and it's not very libertarian to say like you have to support this social issue you're not a libertarian like that's the least libertarian thing that you can do right. so as a radically pro-choice person i don't like the plank yeah i think that's where it'll end up i think it's it's interesting uh interesting discussion i think um yeah, I was trying to remember what you said right before we got into, um, right before we got into the LGBTQ issues. What were the economic discussions you were starting to write about? Oh, yeah. So a couple other big things I do is the COVID stimulus and the property rights. Yeah. And then property I, do, rights, I, I do a lot about, yeah, I was bothered, to be honest. And I don't know where you guys come down on this. I'm very pro-criminal justice reform. I'm very anti-police brutality. I, I certainly am happy to talk about there being racial disparities in policing, but I was so bothered, intensely, beyond words bothered by the rioting and looting and violence. I mean, more than 20 people were killed in all those riots after George Floyd's death and in the months since. That's more people now, and, I, and I, this maybe it's a crude comparison, that's more than the number of unarmed African-American men killed by police in an average year. Not right. to say that those are not all murders and tragic because they are, but I'm simply saying that it seemed like there was this tendency among liberals and progressives and some left libertarians even, I would say, to just dismiss the rioting and looting as just like righteous indignation or something because of police brutality. And I certainly very with them on reform, on abolishing qualified immunity, doing all this stuff. But it's like, hold on, no. To me, the absolute core of American values and of libertarianism is property rights. And violence against property is violence against people. You're destroying people's livelihoods is an attack on their life. Uh, and obviously it descends into literal violence. That's what you saw so many people killed in these riots. So I wrote a lot about the costs and impacts and consequences of the violence everywhere from Chicago to Minneapolis to Washington, D.C. I mean, some of my friends, I live in Arlington, Virginia, and I have many friends that live in D.C. Some of them looked out their window from their apartment building and just saw stores being ransacked and looted. There's huge districts in the city that are still boarded up. Uh, so I, I covered that a lot because I found it really, really disturbing. And I think that, that economic literature in the coming years, in the coming decades, will show long-term fallouts that haunt those communities and those business owners who had their rights violated like that. I agree. And I, I would say um, unequivocally that the Black Lives Matter movement um, in general was probably the worst handled libertarian issue that I've seen since becoming a libertarian in the last five years, uh, in that we we are supporters of criminal justice, um, and we are supporters of property rights, and very few people could walk the line that you're walking, which is we support the Black Lives Matter movement in such that we support criminal justice reform, um, and we support property rights in such that we don't support riots you know what i mean and and i found that libertarians were like you know they were either one side or the other they they supported black lives matter and if riots happen they happen 
you know, but those police better not pepperball people that are rioting because the police have, you know, they're using too much force. And then, or the other side where um, Black Lives Matter is bullshit and all they do is riot. Well, no, you know, a very small fraction of them are rioting. You know, you can still support the, the areas where we have in common. It's not just about race. You know, there's a whole lot of criminal justice aspects that we can agree with them on. And, and I just thought the, the movement in general did a terrible, terrible job on one of the biggest, we can, you know, the pandemic, we also did a terrible job on, but this is one of the biggest things that's happened in a decade. And we just, we were all over the place and nobody had a good answer. We had people literally saying it was good that the police were cracking down and killing people in Portland. You know what I mean? Because they're communists. So it's good. You know, and I'm like, no, you know, <laughs> we also don't it was, want- It was um, a very you know I mean? hard line to thread, a needle to thread, but I, I did try to thread it. Yeah. Uh, and so I was writing at the same time, talking about qualified immunity reform and George Floyd and getting justice. I was writing about the fallout from the Minneapolis riots and the business owners whose dreams have been destroyed by these people. And the Black Lives Matter thing, actually, this might interest you, but my most viewed, my single most viewed article ever uh, was an article that I uh, did for fee.org fleshing out the difference between Black Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter TM. So people will say like on the issue of Black Lives Matter, the left and the right talk past each other because to people on the left, Black Lives Matter is a slogan. That means we care about racial inequality. We care about justice. We care about criminal justice reform. On the right, they look at Black Lives Matter is a literal organization. And that organization is correctly they note Marxist and it opposes the existence of the nuclear family and all sorts of stuff like this. And the left thinks that's all just Fox News propaganda and they don't seem to realize that the actual Black Lives Matter organization or even the center left that they send their donations to and that all these corporations fundraise for is in fact Marxist. But most 90% of the people who marched in the streets enchanted Black Lives Matter, they're not Marxist. They never even heard of this organization or its leaders. Uh, So it was, I'm glad you said this because now I feel comfortable saying it too. It was, it was the single worst handled issue uh, from, from our perspective uh, that I've seen in, in recent years for sure, because the, the message is there and all the events are validating our message. Um, but navigating it is a, a field of, of landmines and people didn't do so hot. And I just didn't understand it because it, and it, I, I just, and I got barbecued over and over and over and over again, but I just could not understand why people couldn't get it. There are two things that we agree on, property rights and criminal justice reform. Why can't we just stick up for those two things and argue against one when they do it the opposite and argue against the other when they do the opposite? And, and people just had to take sides, probably election year and all that bullshit. But it was just, it was incredible to me that nobody wanted to try. I just couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. I, I think our candidates handled it wrong. Our national party handled it wrong. Our folks on social media handled it wrong. I think Spike Cohen was the only one who walked the line as close to right as possible um, and made it more about, you know, gun rights and and criminal justice reform and 
and didn't get involved in, you know, he, he was more on the um, anti-big government than he was on the Black Lives Matter, but he still took part in the marches and whatnot. I think he walked the line the best, um, but I mean, yeah, I was just really disappointed. Right, well, when it comes to the BLM versus BLM TM, like um, Brad was talking about, you know, it, people would do well to be educated about the Frankfurt School of Thought and Eric Fromm, you know, Mark uh, Horkheimer, uh, Herbert Marquis, Walter Benjamin, those thoughts of like when cultural Marxism was coming about and this idea that, you know, the way to infiltrate is to latch on to really strong civil and social issues and then make them automatically aligned with Marxism. So people just kind of buy into it because most people don't understand economics. And these are real teachings. You can Google this, this, you know, and if people were more educated about this, then they would understand that Black Lives Matter, whenever you say Black Lives Matter and you're a progressive and you want to be a good person, you know, it's, it's dinosaur politics, great big hearts, little bitty brains. So, you know, you want to be a good person. You want to support this criminal justice reform. You want to do all of these things, but you don't understand the implications that are behind it because of this Frankfurt School of thought, because of this idea of Marxists attaching themselves to these social issues, because most of the time when people talk about social issues, they get really fired up and they don't think about it completely. And so, you know, that was one way where a lot of people were kind of duped by that thought process. Um, and as somebody that came from that side, I can tell you that it's working exactly the way that it's intended to. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. Um, I And it's actually kind of, you have to give them some credit for it. It's, it's an in, ingenious strategy. Uh, but the truth is very few people would support economic Marxism or you know, big government, California progressive policies if that's what was presented to them. But one thing I've come to realize over the last few years uh, with Trump or with Bernie or with Biden, people don't vote on policy. Now so that, that needs a million caveats but a lot of people at the end of the day vote on culture war and then the policy gets done in the background by a coalition and then people vote on specific policies that affect them. But generally they have this idea of, does my candidate support kneeling for the flag or not? Uh, you know, does my candidate tweet hashtag BLM or not? And then I saw this funny meme. It was, a picture of a, a fighter a fighter pilot or a bomber dropping bombs on a, the Middle East. And it was like under Republicans. And then it was under Democrats, the same picture, but there's a rainbow sticker and a BLM sticker slapped on yeah. that baby. Yeah, I saw that and it was hilarious. And yeah, that, you know, that's an argument that I make all the time. I think that um, one way that libertarianism is failing is if you're a young person and you're coming into college, you know, um, Frankfurt School of Thought, cultural Marxism, they've attached themselves to these civil issues. So, you know, if you think that gay people should be able to get married and that Mexicans are people, then you must automatically support socialism because there's no alternative. I think that we're missing the boat because we focus so much on economics as part of our message. Whereas if we focused on these social issues that people actually care about and vote on and offered an alternative economic policy, to say like, hey, you can support these things and capitalism, then we would do a lot better than what we do right now. It's a good point because I can speak to this personally. 
I, I, I'm in my early twenties and I, a bunch of my friends from college were all of these things, pro LGBT, they're pro choice, they're pro immigration. And then they feel like, okay, well, I just have to be team Democrat. The Republicans don't even feel like an option to them because they're so out of touch with their kind of more inclusive and, and social views that they feel like, okay, well, that has to be my team, right? So where are the people giving them that alternative? And at the same time, those people find the left really off-putting, the, the hard left, the social justice, you know, conquer and crush people. Um, but so, so where is the alternative to those people that says, hey, it's fine if you like immigrants, it's fine if you are pro-LGBT, it, it, it's fine if you're cult culturally liberal, but here's an all economic philosophy that will set you up to thrive for that. You don't have to go with the Marxists. I think like Gary Johnson was a really flawed candidate in a lot of ways, but like to some small extent, he managed to give that option to some people. And that's why he got a lot of votes. But like, if that was a bigger option and a more credible and serious option for more people, um, I think that would be a winning message. But right now, a whole generation is becoming liberal by default just because they despise Trump and they see Republicans as racist bigots. And they say, well, we're not that, so we must be the other guys, even though those other guys are increasingly embracing Marxist policies. And those are just kind of coming with the package. And it feels like there's a huge opportunity in what you talked about earlier, which is just that we need to we need to find a way to market libertarianism as a place where you can come and believe in these things. You can have your own uh, moral belief set, but all you have to agree to is that you don't believe that government should enforce, you know, um, things on your side or things on the other side. So if you believe that government force should not be used to enforce these different moral sides, and you believe that we shouldn't spend a trillion dollars more than we get taxed, you know what I mean? Then this mm -hmm. is a home for you. Because I think there's a number of Republicans in the moderate area that don't want, you know, morality enforced by a gun. Uh, and there's definitely a lot of Democrats. And I think in moderates in general don't want to see our you know, debt go up two to three trillion dollars a year, which is where we're headed. Um, and I just think there's a huge opportunity here and nobody's figured out this message. No one's figured out the right way to talk about it. And Gary Johnson did a better job than most. But I think a lot of that was because, you know, the hated candidates at the time. Um, but I think we need to get back there. We need to, we need to start with that message. So... Anyway, um, I think this is a great episode. Brad, talk about where people can find you. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for having me on, guys. I really appreciate it. Uh, if your listeners are interested in more of what I have to say, I'm on Twitter every single day, like you guys are, posting my articles and uh, other stuff. So it's Brad underscore Palumbo, P-O-L-U-M-B-O. And then I'm hosting a weekly podcast interviewing politicians, thought leaders, policymakers, uh, journalists, and more. I've had guests like Rand Paul, Steve Forbes, Glenn Greenwald, all sorts of people. And I have more coming up. I've actually got Tulsi Gabbard coming on. So I'm pretty excited about that. 
Uh, but if people are interested in subscribing to that, that's Breaking Boundaries with Brad Palumbo on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also just go to my Twitter, Brad underscore Palumbo, P-O-L-U-M-B-O, and it's all in, in the pinned tweet. So yeah, thank you guys so much for having me on. And I really appreciate the conversation. Yeah, it's been an excellent episode. Thanks so much for coming on. I'll put all of your contact information in the description. So if you guys want to find him, you'll be able to get uh, links to his podcast, links to his Twitter, all that stuff. I I think it was a great episode. I'd love to have you back on. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, sir. We'll get you back on for something down the road here.